0: Everything's trying to compete to like grab your attention away from, you know, instead of your Facebook feed, go look at TikTok instead, like it's even better. I think that race will continue to run, but it uh, there's like a vacuum that gets created for things that are higher quality and that are focused more on sort of like signal to noise. So if if one half of it is appealing to your lizard brain, right, TikTok's trying to make like the perfect version of what's cheaply compelling. Like what's it, once you start, what's going to keep you glued to the couch for the next hour There's like, that's one race that's running, and that's going to get better and better and better. And then at some point, people are going to say, I want to take back my mind.
1: Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imar Dhakhand, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury, and I'm joined today with Raj.
2: I'm Raj Suri, I'm the co-founder of Lyft and Presto Automation, and I'm really excited about our guest today, Chris Best, who is the co-founder and CEO of Substack, and he's really an interesting guy, you know, who has really disrupted the model of of media and journalism and how people distribute their content. Emma, what are you curious about when it comes to talking to Chris? People who are really thoughtful, and I guess they used to be called the elites, kind of
1: define how the rest of society thinks and like new ideas come from them and i think chris really kind of understands that and like substack is the new way these thoughtful people can distribute their content and do it without censorship and gives them a platform for it which is yeah a really important endeavor and chris really talks about it really thoughtfully
2: yeah, and media is changing so dramatically in front of our eyes. It feels like every few years, the, the landscape dramatically changes, but it's, it's as important as ever. Right? News events are shaped by what happens in the media, and our perceptions of the world are shaped by what happens in the media. So these types of companies, these types of business models are important to everyone. So yeah, I'm very curious to learn about how Chris thinks that everything is going to evolve here. So with
1: that, uh, welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. I guess before we go into deeper conversation, maybe give us a little bit of background on uh, Substack and why you had this idea, and like you know, is it the same idea that like, you kind of started off with?
0: So Substack is a platform for writers, it lets you start your own independent publication, it lets you publish to the web, to email, to the Substack network, and readers can subscribe directly to you. So you, they can give you their email address, they can sign up for you, they can pay you directly which is both, in my mind, a small idea and a big idea, both in one. The big version of this is we're setting out to build a new economic engine for culture. What you read matters, it shapes how you think, it shapes how you see the world, Uh, it shapes who you are, shapes sort of who we are as a society. And so great writing and great culture in general is valuable, Uh, is sort Mm -hmm. of deeply valuable. And it's deeply and increasingly valuable in a world where that, you know, more and more our attention and the things that we put in our mind becomes sort of like the scarce resource compared to everything else. And so Substack is our, in the, in the, in the grandiose ambitious sense, it's our attempts to sort of like rewrite the rules for media on the internet, like what's possible to do, what kind of content can survive and thrive and make money and be something you can do professional work doing. But the start of it, and especially at the, at the very early days, is a very small idea. It was like, well, what if I could just you know sort of start a paid email newsletter and website? Like I'm a writer, I have a thing, people want it, can we get it to them and have them pay me for it? Those are not different ideas, those to me are just points on one line. <laughs> They're sort of like a journey from nothing to full stack subscription network that powers this revolutionary new economic engine for culture. And we started at that point, and now we're like a few steps along the way towards that end state. You can create a heaven or a hell with the exact same people. You have a tremendous amount of creative power for good and for ill when you make a space on the internet that people come to spend their time and lives. And after I left Kick, after sort of seven or eight years there, I was taking some time off. As I mentioned, I've always been an avid reader. I grew up in a house full of books. My dad's an English teacher. And so I was like, I should write. How hard could it be? I'm also full of hubris is my other defining characteristic. I should write. Great writing is valuable. Like how hard could it be?
1: All entrepreneurs need significant hubris. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, but writing you know, writing is one of these things that it, everybody thinks they can do it. So I'm no exception. I, I And I started writing what I thought was going to be an essay or a blog post detailing my frustrations with, you know, as I saw them with the media economy the internet. I was sort of like, you know, wah, wah, wah. The business model for print media has been killed through, and we haven't really replaced it with something satisfactory. Wah, wah, wah. You know, this is 2017. Maybe Facebook's not an unalloyed good. You know, blah, 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 blah. And I sent it to my friend Hamish, who's actually a writer who I'd worked with before. And he let me down very gently. He was like, you know, the people that inhabit my world kind of know all this stuff already. (laughs) You're not breaking any brilliant new ground complaining about these things. But the interesting question as always is not what's wrong. The interesting question is, so what? Let's say you're right about all the stuff. Let's say that, you know, the culture is eroding because we've taken out the economic foundation for it. And we've created these like games that pull in the the wrong direction and create perverse incentives that shape how we all think and feel and act. What would you do about that? Like, how could it be different? And that argument kind of turned into both the grand idea for Substack that's sort of like, hey, we could sort of create this alternate universe where the laws of physics are different. It's not going to be about capture as much attention as possible in order to sell it as a commodity to advertisers. It's going to be about helping people discover things that they deeply value and want to spend their time with and want to support and sort of like take back their mind. And at the same time, you know, we knew some people. Hamish especially knew a bunch of writers. We were subscribers to Ben Thompson. And especially writers right now are so hilariously underserved that there's this very clear initial version of that that's actually almost foolishly simple. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Our our biggest objection to the idea of Substack, we're like, it can't just be you send them emails and make a website and then pay, people pay, right? Like it can't be that easy. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a deep thing that we hit on with that.
2: Where do you think this whole thing ends up, you know, 10, 20 years from now? What do you think the media landscape looks like? And it seems to me that like this idea of like people subscribing to individuals versus uh, media, you know, that has its place. But, you know, does it become the dominant form of media consumption Or, or are there other forms that we're not even contemplating today? The
0: way that I tend to look at this is in the short run, I think you get a lot of competition on formats there's sort of a a path dependent way that these things roll out in the long run i think the economic systems that underpin what gets created end up mattering a great deal i tend to look at it as like what are the rules of the systems that people are spending all of their time and attention in what kinds of things do those systems pull towards and over time are those things good and satisfying to people such that they'll choose to keep spending their time there. To me the story of like the internet so far was kind of like, you know, Craigslist came along and killed the business model for classifieds. Facebook came along, the massive scale attention monster sort of like network was such a powerful force. It was such a like economically compelling thing because everybody in the world had attention to to, to spare, right? Like people used to get bored. There used to be this time (laughs) before the internet where you'd be like, huh, I have nothing to do right now. If you could entertain me, if you could distract me for free, that's a great deal because I, otherwise I'm gonna go like what channel surf or like play cards or something. Mm -hmm. And so this bargain that those networks created was sort of like, hey, we'll give you something that's entertaining for free. And that sucked up all the oxygen in the ecosystem. I mean, it's sort of pulled everything into it in this massive sort of black hole of pulling in everybody's attention and being massively successful. But it's not clear to me that we've hit on a model that creates sufficient incentives to make things that are actually good. Now we're in this flippening point where nobody gets bored anymore. Nobody's sitting around thinking, oh gee, I wish I had something more to read or something more to look at. It's like uh, there's this zero sum war for everyone's attention and everything's trying to compete to like grab your attention away from, you know, instead of your Facebook feed, go look at TikTok instead. It's like, it's even better. I think that race will continue to run. There's like a vacuum that gets created for things that are higher quality and that are focused more on sort of like signal to noise. If one half of it is appealing to your lizard brain, right? TikTok's trying to make like the perfect version of... What's cheaply compelling? Like once you start, what's going to keep you glued to the couch for the next hour? That's one race that's running and that's going to get better and better and better. And then at some point people are going to say, I want to take back my mind. This is compelling to me. I'm choosing it in the same way that I choose to keep eating potato chips when I have a bag open in front of me, but it's not actually the way I want to spend my life. It's not making me smarter. It's not making me better. It's not making me more satisfied. And so I think The new kind of media that we born are the things that people choose, not as the the worst forms of themselves, but as a better form of themselves where they say, Hey, this is what I aspire to be. If what I read is who I am, I'm going to make some more conscious choices about who I want to become. And I think subscribing to individuals is really powerful for that. Having a direct connection is really powerful for that. And the most important thing there I think is just trust does the thing that I'm deputizing to help me spend my attention, is it aligned with my interest? Is it trying to give me something that I value so that I would pay for it so that I would continue to have a direct relationship with it? Or is it working kind of at cross purposes with me? And I think the Substack model of direct connection and, you know, especially the sort of like there's a human being on the other end that I've chosen to trust that wants to earn and keep my trust is one very powerful instantiation of that.
1: I like this analogy that you have between, I guess, healthy food and fast food and, I guess, healthy media and like kind of fast, cheap media. That's a great analogy. Do you worry a little bit that like healthy media will always be a niche thing? Like, is it just maybe 5% of people go seek out and subscribe and like 95% of people are getting kind of this kind of fast media that's like grabbing attention and fulfilling their kind of lizard brain?
0: Yeah, I think it's a rich analogy. One of the things I sometimes tell the team is like, okay, our goal is to make things that are not like, we're creating an alternative to the very worst fast food, something, something. We're not trying to be the eat your vegetables platform either. If I sit back and think, you know, how do I want to arrange my food diet? I don't think, well, I'm just going to eat bowls full of kale (laughs) and be very Mm -hmm. virtuous all the time. I think, well, I want to have a mix. Yeah, maybe I have some cotton candy once in a while, but maybe also sometimes I have you know, a salad or a steak or a balanced meal or like a, a variety of things. If the problem with TikTok is that it's too compelling, it's too cheaply compelling to the lizard brain, the answer to that is not the, to make the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. If it's too fun, the problem is it's like it's not like fun is bad and we should make things that are not fun. We're just trying to make something that's a mix, that's not sort of like pulled so far to that one end that it loses everything else. If you optimize so far along one dimension, eventually it kind of like every other nutritional value of it starts to suffer. And a lot of people try to make these platforms. It's like, oh, we're going to make a platform that's like the platform for reason debate. Everyone's going to be good and epistemically blah, blah, blah. And the problem is it's like, it never <laughs> it's never fun. It's never good. Like it never gets to the point where it's actually like, you know, a satisfying meal that you might choose to eat instead of whatever the toothpaste tube full of, sugary fat that everything else is trying to is trying to give you. So I think you can make something that's more of it. I don't think it's going to be everybody. I don't think it's going to be the majority of all people are going to be willing to pay for great media. I don't think it has to be for the business model to work. That's one of the things that's, that's magical about it. I think a lot about Sturgeon's Law, which is that 90% of everything is crap. My aspiration is that Substack is for the other
2: 10%. Do you have concerns for the written word in general? Like, uh, you know, when you have content like TikTok, which is, so fun and so entertaining and it's really kind of well categorized or well encapsulated into like these pleasure-filled videos right and the algorithm always constantly shows you the things that you might like you know the written word takes a lot more mental energy to really absorb and you know you have to use your imagination more obviously if you look at the distribution of time people are spending today, a lot more of it is going to be on video and maybe one day in VR and other other forms of media. You know, do you think about like where the written word is going to go in general, and how people are going to consume that for pleasure, not just not for education necessarily?
0: Yeah, I do think it's interesting. I think it will be around. I think that especially when we think about this mode of things that I choose for myself, things that I value, things that I aspire to. I think for the set of people who are looking for high culture, who are looking for great ideas, who are looking to like think and engage deeply with things, there's gonna be a set of people. To me, I could even tell a story where it sort of strengthens at this end, like as the bulk of people read less and less, reading becomes a bigger and bigger differentiator. It's a bigger, you know, it's a more exclusive thing. It's a thing that, you know, is more sort of like sharply divides the people who are thinking deeply about things. But I also don't think that the written word is the only format for this kind of great work. Like I think, you know, we have podcasting on Substack and it works really well. And we're experimenting with video and we're experimenting with events. I don't think that sort of great work and great cultures needs to be limited to the written word. I just think that it's it's sort of like the place where that stuff often starts and where we sort of have this early set of amazing people.
2: So is the central idea behind Substack then the, the direct connection between like the creator and the consumer?
0: Yes. I would say that the direct connection is the central mechanism. And the idea is that that direct connection empowers the writer and the reader. It empowers the writer to say what they want, to do the work that they believe in, to make money from earning and keeping people's trust. And it empowers the reader to take back their mind, to choose their own heroes, to say, I'm going to think about who I want to like let into my head and let into my mental world. And the direct connection is the mechanism that gives both sides of that the power.
1: Would it not work if like, a future New York Times came along and started a Substack and had multiple writers? Is there, is there like limitations to like, that working at all? Or you don't think that's the right medium for it?
0: I'm actually very interested in this. A lot of people who start Substacks do so because they want to exist outside of institutions. But some of the people who start Substacks are creating new institutions. And we actually already have a fair number of these things that either started as an individual or even started with this aspiration that that are doing this. I mean there's examples of this. The free press is on Substack and is building a media empire. There's no other way to put it. And I do think that the, you know, in that case you have the direct connection, right? People are still signing up to give this this institution now a slice of my attention, a slice of my trust, a slice of my money. And I think that the incentives stay the same. And I think that there's a real chance that that thing, if we can get the institution right, that that thing works and creates sort of like a new class of media companies that are worthy of people's trust.
2: When you have this direct connection, can you innovate with the feedback loops that creators get? Because, you know, again, back in the day, people would just put content out there and they'd probably get feedback from random people they meet in the street or they get fan mail or something. But in this day and age, feedback... You know can be so much more real time so much richer in content and also meaning and when you have that direct connection there's probably a lot more you can do has there been any thought of what that could look like
0: we think about that a lot and we think about how do we allow people to feel sort of cause and effect you don't want to go too far you don't want to get you know you don't want people to be so sort of like metrics and feedback addicted that they're just sort of like hill climbing you want people to to do the things they think are good but when people love your work, when people respond to it, when they come subscribe to you, you know the best kind of feedback is somebody comes and pays you a hundred dollars. That's better than any like. You know, if people are finding the thing that you're making resonating enough that they come and they give you their email address, they decide to spend their time with you, and they decide to spend your, their money with you. I think that's like kind of the most powerful thing, and then those people are the people you want to disproportionately accept feedback from. The people who are your core base that are there for you, that deeply understand and care about you, like your work, that means something. If those people criticize your work, that might mean something interesting to you. So we, we try to make sure that we correctly expose those sort of relationships. And people on Substack feel they have a, a much more direct and real-time relationship with the people that subscribe to them.
1: I don't know if you've read the book Sapiens, but it has this idea that like, maybe hunter-gatherers were actually like a better, more better lifestyle, better kind Mm. of happiness, but like agricultural civilization still took over because they could just make more babies and they could like go to war and always overcome hunter-gatherer civilization. Do you worry a little bit about ideas that like, you know, There's this set of ideas that are good, but they're going to be behind paywalls. And then there's another set of ideas that will spread faster because they're ad-driven, they're clickbaity, and like, you know, when you think about misinformation or whatever, right? Like, will bad information that just has like a better viral loop like always beat like good information that's behind a paywall? And like, we just end up with a fairly uneducated populace, basically. Yeah,
0: that's a great question. And first of all, I just like to in passing say poppycock to the idea that 100 you know the the the, the novels yeah, I, I also I also <laughs>
1: somewhat reject that idea, but, but it is like a compelling thought process. You know, we talk about this new economic
0: engine for culture we're doing. One way to look at it is an evolutionary landscape for memes, for ideas, for yeah. you know, it's it's sort of like a an environment in which Ideas are spreading and succeeding and influencing people and taking hold and reproducing. The big difference between the landscape for memes and the landscape for genes is that the memes are people. The people are the substrate, they're participants, and they have a choice. People are not just sort of like inanimate objects that follow the laws of physics and will go inevitably do whatever thing that ends up doing. Certainly it's the case that you can plug people into a system that helps the most outrageous things spread and that creates all kinds of bad emergent dynamics. History has shown that you can make a website that almost everyone on the website really hates, but they're addicted to and they use it and then it creates all these problems. But that also opens up the possibility that you could make something different and better. If you could make a different evolutionary landscape for ideas where the things that tend to win and the people that tend to win are doing something different and better that some people will choose, that some people value. I think over time, that thing can actually carve out space and even win against a landscape that's more sort of cheaply compelling because people, some people will choose it. And at the start, only a few people have to choose it. It doesn't have to be that everybody comes and does it, but you know, there's over 2 million paid subscriptions on Substack now. That's not nobody. People are hungry for this thing. That, the fact that it exists means that better and better stuff can start to be created. As better and better stuff gets created, it becomes more and more clearly compelling. Like, I think there's like a positive loop there that we can create if we mm, do it yeah. well. I accept the idea that there are some bad forms of information that spread for bad reasons and that that's unfortunate. I don't accept that that's inevitable. I don't think that's a law of of nature. I think that's an accident
1: of circumstance. Do you think I don't want to enter a culture war here, but uh, <laughs> there is an interesting kind of thought. Bring it on. There. Like <laughs> do you think like media platforms such as Substack are responsible for misinformation that spreads on them? Like, you know, if you find something that is clearly incorrect and maybe uh, hurts people in some specific way, like do you think there should be some accountability to like stopping that misinformation spreading?
0: I actually think that. The norms of a free press and free speech are deeply important things, (laughs) deeply important ideas that have come to us for a reason. I think it's like a crucial thing in a free society. And I think it's a crucial thing for a platform that's trying to create, you know, a good place for ideas, for debate, for discussion. It's a counterintuitive idea also right? It's the idea of free speech in a free press is hard to sort of wrap your head around in the moment because to the extent that it exists, it exists for the worst things, right? Like free speech for things that are, we think are true and good and we agree with is not free speech at all. Mm. The whole point of it is tolerance for things that you disagree with or think are wrong or bad or misleading. You can't pick out one and not the other. And the reason for that is because sorting out, what's true and what's good is not is the whole ballgame. You're not going to have a, a central council that says, all right, we're just going to only let people say true things. That doesn't work and that doesn't exist. And even if you try to say, okay, well, we're going to just only outlaw the things that are clearly misinformation or clearly bad, those schemes in practice don't end up working. And I don't think they end up helping either. I think the idea that if misinformation is bad therefore suppressing misinformation is an effective way to fight it i don't think that works in the long run either i think the there is a way out of this thing that we know which is you know a culture and a legal tradition of free speech coupled with a uh, tradition of criticism and a you know the idea that anybody can critique and debate and pull things
1: out was there a moment where on substack like there was something published and you were like Oh, I know this is wrong, but I'm not gonna like remove it or like you oh. you found it very abhorrent, but like you thought it was important for it to stay up.
0: Constantly. <laughs> oh mean, really? We do have content, we have policies that prohibit certain very narrowly construed things, but by design, it allows for all kinds of stuff that I think I don't agree with. I don't think it would be a good platform if I had to agree with or be comfortable with or support everything that was written on it. That
2: wouldn't be putting writers and readers in charge. I guess one thing I'm curious about is like, does the life of the writer look like? You're serving writers and a way the writer would monetize their brain, basically, you know, their ability to write back in the day would have been basically a book, right? A book or like getting a salary at like at a news agent. So you're uh, or, or newspaper or something like that. So you've created a whole new business model basically for the writer, which is to, you know, have this one-on-one uh, relationship is your belief and hope that like more people will become writers and be able to step away and, and be writers because of them? That's why you you know you came up with the idea. But where do you think that evolves to? I mean, over time. I mean, um, people are writing on, on the side, people are writing part-time, like or creating content basically, you know, in that way.
0: To me, this is the whole bull case for Substack, basically. Is at the start, the people who were early successes tended to be have some success already, right? they they had some readership. There's a lot of people who were like famous writers at publications that would then come to Substack and make 10 times as much money and be much freer in what they do. And that's great. And we love that the platform can do that. We think that's like unlocking potential and and doing something good. But in the long run, the value of the new economic engine for culture is allowing things to be created that might otherwise never have been created, which means there's kinds of work that writers can do on Substack that wouldn't have fit in in other places, which is very common. And there are people who never would have been writers in the first place, if not for this model. And we're starting to see that a lot more now. There's a guy on Substack who basically started a Substack as his his first job. He's like never made any other money, like out of college. If not for this, probably would have like, whatever, gone to law school like his parents wanted him to, or some other, you know, whatever your hopes your parents have to get you a stable career, but then make so much money on Substack that you can sort of like put a professional effort into this thing that you believe in, that you think is good. That to me is like the the most exciting part of it because there's something, it's causing some value to be created in the world that would have been lost to us otherwise. And I think that mm-hmm. we're actually just like at the start of that thing. That's, that's the thing I,
2: I get really excited about. What's the best way for people to discover content, like written content? I mean, like books by himself can be a challenge. Emma asks ask all the time, "What's a good sci-fi book?" You know, how does he get like recommendations for like great sci-fi Substacks, for example? How does he get a sample of them? You know, so he knows it's good content.
0: Well, one thing you should know about Substack is writers on Substack, even when they go paid, they decide what to make paid and what to make free. Right. And so people who are paid tend to publish a lot of stuff for free as well because that becomes kind of like their top of funnel that's answering exactly this question. How do people find out that they like them enough to pay for them is mm-hmm. they they have some free content. It's an interesting problem in general, and I'll give two things that I think are uniquely interesting on Substack for how to find things. One is through a recommendation from somebody you already read and trust. So if you read person A and they say, one of the services i'm going to give to you with this trust you place in me is to put you onto other things that are good you should check out person b if you have a favorite substack writer you can see what other things they recommend you can see what other things they read and that's a very powerful source we've seen of people discovering things that they value and one that's pretty good is just like what are people paying for what do people like enough that they're parting with their money for it both people you know and also just people in the world like you can go and see what the top grossing <laughs> Substacks are, the best-selling Substacks in some area, in some topic. It doesn't necessarily mean that you like it, but it means that someone likes it, which is pretty, pretty interesting.
2: Yeah. That uh, makes it harder for you to get you know, new and aspiring writers some revenue too, right?
0: Well, I mean, the recommendations is a really interesting vehicle for that, right? Like We often see a new and aspiring writer who you know, knows or works with somebody, with other people on Substack, who they recognize. They say, oh, you're new, but this is good. I would like to help you. I would like to help launch you. I'd like to recommend you do a guest post, do a cross post. We see a lot of new writers actually launching through the networks of things that they've done of people who have recognized them for their work. I think that actually creates a vehicle where that can start to happen.
2: Really cool.
1: I guess a lot of the distribution comes from like existing kind of Twitter distribution that people have or like some other social media distribution they have. I remember, I guess like maybe it's like 10 years ago. Everyone saw Twitter as this like new wave of journalism. And that didn't really play out. And maybe it did to some extent. But I guess like, A, why don't you think it played out in that way? And B, would you say, Twitter is kind of going after subscriptions a lot more recently? Like, do you think that they would be successful as it is in journalism? Or is it just something completely different?
0: I do think that Twitter successfully looms very large in the minds of journalists and the people that do this stuff. I do think the biggest thing that there was never a real answer for there, along with the other social media platforms, was what is the economic model for this? How am I actually empowered? Like, How do I actually have something that I can own and have a direct connection that's not just like mediated by whatever network I'm on? And how do I make money? doing things that are actually, you know, great work is worth an effort. It's worth sometimes like a full-time effort. You know, if great writing and great journalism and great thought and culture is valuable, having a way to like really economically reward that is very powerful. And I think you're seeing this now. I mean, Twitter is trying to do a lot of the Substack stuff for this reason.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the advertising model is pretty powerful, right? My previous company was an ad tech company, and you know, if you have engagement you can make money on like eyeballs, right? Like that's like much simpler in some ways than like trying to build an audience with subscription and doing all of that. And I think Twitter will struggle making enough money on subscriptions versus the ads business. And it almost contradicts each other as well. Like if you put content behind paywalls, then like you have less page views to basically like monetize, right?
0: yeah, I think it's certainly it's putting subscriptions into. Like an attention economy classic thing is at least awkward.
1: Yeah. You had a little, little war with Twitter <laughs> a month ago. Any comments on that? <laughs> is that over now? Are you happy with Twitter and vice versa?
0: Unfortunately, I do think it's still ongoing. I think they're still sort of like abusing Substack writers in a way that is no good. We're disappointed with it.
1: Substack links get like less distribution on Twitter. I thought the whole thing with Elon was like the algorithm is open source. So, like, you, you would be able to see any sort of tampering like that. Right. That was the idea.
0: I'll leave as an exercise to the reader whether he's living up to those promises.
1: Got it. Raj is actually my friend that's most into TikTok. And this is probably <laughs> like a, a question that Raj won't like. But, you know, in 2016, everyone was worried about like Russia tampering with the elections. And now we have literally the biggest social network that's owned by a Chinese company which i think is like somewhat ironic just on that basis do you think like it should be banned or either banned or forced to like sell to us owners where are you on this
0: i don't know if i have a, a great clear take on it like i sort of am of two minds on it on the one hand i think the concerns are real i think the yes it has a tremendous amount of power yes it's in the hands of a known sort of like adversarial Totalitarian foreign government. On the other hand, I worry about, as with all of these things, as we saw with the, you know, the Russian tampering thing, the response to this being for government here to arrogate more and more power to regulate and do these things. I both worry about what does it mean that we have this tremendously popular network that's owned this way. But I also worry about anytime there's sort of like You know bipartisan consensus of all right we're going to come in and get to remake the media landscape how we want and empowering the government here to like take over or control or force these companies to do certain things in the name of national security or national interest or preventing misinformation or this and that i kind of think both are bad and i don't know if i have the perfect solution for you sorry
1: does substack work in china I think it's banned. (laughs) I think parts of it work, but I don't think in in the whole, I don't think it works. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing that's kind of interesting is yeah, again, 10 years ago, it felt like the internet was like this massive globalization force, right? That all content would be global, all software would be available to everyone. And over time, we've had like a little bit more balkanization of it, right? Like TikTok is banned in India the content you get in even Europe is different from what you get in the US. Do you think that's inevitable? It's like a de-globalization of the internet is like underway and it's just going to get more and more. so.
0: I think plausibly, yes. I'm not even sure it's a bad thing. I, d- I think that, you know, the specific instances are sad and bad sometimes, but I think in general, kind of like a balkanization or fracturing or a splintering into kind of like many different parts and pieces that, that kind of exist independently can be a, in general, a force for good, even if in the specific
1: cases, it's sort of frustrating. Well, why would it be a force for good?
0: Because you end up with less of a monoculture. You end up with differences, with real sort of like diversity and pluralism of things that happen. You know, I think on the country level, it's probably not the ideal version of that. Um, but if we ended up with sort of a wider Dispersion of where people spend their time and where people get their information. I think that would be, it would create some variety and some competition and some forces that might make things better. Hmm.
1: That's interesting. I feel like most of the time it gets done in a way that like it's more restrictive, right? Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. If there was a world where it was done, like I guess to some extent, China did a pretty good job of helping their social media companies versus the US social media companies that might have. Become dominant if it wasn't for their restrictions. Yeah, I'm very skeptical of attempts to do this top down and
0: to regulate it.
2: What do you think the future of like newspapers are in general? It seems to be going, it's like just the big brands stick around and they're the only ones who can attract enough dollars to fund like a whole staff. There seems to be a rise and fall constantly of, of newspapers. I think there was what Vice recently that. Were a shutting down or a fire sale or something? And then there was BuzzFeed and then, you know, there's a bunch of these. But those are newer ones. Uh, you know, some of the established brands seem to be doing great. Like uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. What do you think happens to newspapers or what well, used to be called newspapers? I mean, news media, written news media.
0: I think it's a tough landscape for those businesses. And with the exception of, as you note, sort of like a couple of the biggest ones that are nationally relevant, Maybe world relevant and have managed to like make subscriptions a major piece of their business model. A lot of it's just the the business model that used to support these things has been disappearing, right? First of all, the local newspaper business model, where you sort of had a monopoly on print distribution for an area, and if local advertisers needed to use it, like if you wanted to put something in the classifieds or Advertise your local business, or like oh, there's a variety of things you sort of had this money printing machine of just having the distribution to some local thing. That thing's gone. A lot of the new media things that came up depended on certain relationships with the platforms that actually sent them attention. Like every time Facebook changed something, it could totally sweep away what BuzzFeed was or wasn't doing. So I think anything that's depending on either economic models that don't exist anymore or economic models that are kind of like, downstream from these giant networks that aren't necessarily aligned or don't necessarily care, I think it's gonna be a tough time for any company that's based on those things. I do think it creates an opportunity for new things. You know, you see this on Substack and you see this elsewhere too. There's a, there's a moment where you can create new kinds of media businesses that are starting to work and starting to be very exciting. But I think anything that's sort of from the old world is in a tough spot, to be
2: honest. Oh, can you give us some examples of like new types of media businesses that you're seeing that could replace the old?
0: You know, I like these subscription, (laughs) these (laughs) subscription publications that people are making on this little known platform called Substack. There's other platforms and people that are trying models that are sort of subscription based and just Mm -hmm. other ways to do a similar thing. I think that type of model is very promising. The thing that podcasts are evolving into the sort of like a web show where it's both a, literally a podcast and it's a video and it's a series of clips. And that thing has some combination of subscriptions or advertising. I think that's a model that will be re- really interesting to watch where that goes.
2: What about local news? Local has real value to people living in the area. There used to be like a newspaper for every town, maybe several newspapers for every small town. You know, like does that continue or you don't really see that happening?
0: I unfortunately think that the old model that used to support local newspapers doesn't work anymore. And you're absolutely right that there is value in local news. And so there's kind of a vacuum that's being created where there's, you know, people want to (laughs) have some need and desire to find out what's going on in their city, in their town. But even given that the local news Paper model that used to work is very hard to make work now. And so I do think there's going to need to be new things that happen there. We are seeing some of this happen on Substack. There's a bunch of sort of local, like the Manchester Mill, there's a bunch of people who've done like these like local, sort of like specific Substacks. And the model works very well for that because you only need, you know, a relatively small number of paying subscribers to make the thing start to go. So I'm very excited about Substack for that. And I think in general, we're going to need to try new things because I don't think that local newspapers are going to make it for the most part.
1: It's a shame that Nextdoor and some of these other local social networks didn't go after news. Yeah, they kind of went after this kind of social thing. I guess they could it's almost news, but yeah, it (laughs) it never felt quite like content. Back in the day when there was these newspapers and everyone got the same newspaper, there was this kind of force that went towards the center. You wanted to try to publish things that were like widely popular and that was kind of nice. Whereas now, like I see it all the time on Twitter, for example. There's people that just have these beliefs that are like complete opposite from other people who have these separate beliefs and they're like literally completely disagree with each other. Like the basis of their beliefs is just like separate, right? You have these content bubbles. And I guess Substack doesn't really fix that. If anything, it makes it worse because you're choosing to follow someone. And often you choose based on like political beliefs or like other things that you have like agreement on. So is that just inevitable that people become like more and more further from each other and have their kind of content bubbles?
0: I don't think it's inevitable. You're right that on Substack people choose what to subscribe to. Often I'll see people, you know, in the launch of somebody who's launching a paid Substack, I'll see people in the comments saying, I've just subscribed. I don't always agree or I even frequently disagree with what you write about, but I find value in it. I find it useful. Mm. And that happens. And people are actually hungry for that. People aren't going to subscribe to like the shrieking person that hates everything I that I love. They're like, they're going to go and pay for that. And that's fine. But people do seek out things that they disagree with or things that they like get some value from to find other perspectives. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that people aren't interested in that stuff, given the right model and given the right choice architecture. I also think you're right that local newspapers used to have this. There used to be a model that sort of pulled towards the center because you, if you have sort of like an advertising monopoly on some geography, you kind of want to make something that's just broadly palatable to that group. And so it does have this sort of moderating force that pulls towards the center. The advantage of that is that, okay, it's sort of moderating and you get sort of people pulled towards the consensus view and, you know, it, it sort of tamps down on the extremes. The disadvantage of that is... If the consensus is wrong, that's bad. Bad. (laughs) Um, You know, you can moderate away from the truth or away from justice just as easily as you can moderate towards it. And in the ideal world, you want something where you can have a variety of different perspectives, a variety of different ideas that can be created and work out and compete and then have some process that sorts the ones that work, sorts the ones that, that resonate and are good and are true and helps them you know, spread and succeed. So if the old style newspapers didn't have that much variety, they kind of just pulled towards whatever the average was. Social media lets a thousand flowers bloom, but there's not as much force where the, the ones that are true and good succeed. It's sort of like just whatever's the most successful at outraging and reproducing and getting people to, to talk about it are the things that succeed. If you could have instead something that allows for all of this diversity of thought and opinion, and then has some mechanism to find the value and to find the things that people not just click on, but that they find value in, I think that's probably the ideal solution.
2: What do you think of like a possible future where there's like a Netflix type model for news or content I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, but it seems obvious, I mean, as a consumer, I I really get annoyed having to deal with all the paywalls and death by a thousand cuts of um, subscription costs. What do you think of that?
0: I think that it's an interesting area for us because on the one hand, bundle economics are real. There's a real thing where at some point, if you have lots of good things, there's an economic deal that you can make that says, hey, you should pay a little bit more but you're gonna get really a lot more. And as a producer, you know, hey, you should charge a little bit less, but you're gonna get so many more people subscribing that it ends up, you end up with sort of more money. There's sort of like a win-win potential bargain to be made with some type of bundle. I don't think specifically the like Netflix model that's sort of like an all-you-can-eat type thing, and Medium did a similar thing, would not work for Substack because it severs the direct relationship basically. Because as soon as you have that, now the next question is like, great, how do you spread the money? Now, what are you spreading it on? Is it based on what they actually watch? Well, now you're back to rewarding attention. Is it based on claps? Well, now you're back to rewarding whoever can get you to click, click the clap button. You've sort of, you've divorced the decision-making power of the people who are consuming the thing away from who's being supported and who you have a direct relationship with. So something I'm excited about as a potential future thing for Substack is, is there a thing that can unlock the economic value of bundling while still keeping the direct connection and putting the readers and the writers in charge, I think there might be ways that we could do that. I don't think it will be as simple as, oh, we'll just adopt the Netflix model.
2: I think like, Spotify does it like, based on listens.
0: But that creates a bunch of potentially perverse incentives. For example, if you make something that people listen to more, even if they don't like it as much... You know, if if it's something that people deeply, deeply love, but they only listen to a few times, you can't sort that out. And therefore, you can't reward people that are creating that kind of thing. And then Spotify as a platform, I think they pay people differently based on listens. And so they have this incentive to push you towards music that they pay less for. If you, you ever notice the Spotify curated playlists are like pushing you towards like weird covers or like unknown bands. There's a lot of like, let us like replace this music with mystery meat i don't think that that ends up pulling towards quality culture that's worth paying
1: for in the long run do you think microtransactions also suffer from the same problem it seemed obvious a long time ago (laughs) that oh we should just make it so you can pay for this news with like five cents but again that never kind of came out as a model that that worked. that doesn't quite have the same problem that like this intention-based economy would
0: microtransactions suffer from a different fatal problem (laughs) They, they, they don't work for sort of the thing that raj pointed out is that for every payment decision i make there's kind of like an economic component of i'm gonna miss that five cents and then there's sort of a friction component of just you made me think about it i had to decide whether to do it i had to go through the thing where i clicked it and it took some time and the problem with microtransactions is that they they make the the money component very small. And so the friction component comes to dominate. And mm. to pay economically meaningful amounts of money, you're going to have to go through like a an amount of annoyance you're not going to be willing to go through. And it ends up just like the economics for the writer don't work, basically. A subscription is 100 or 1,000 times more effective at getting the writer paid, even if not everybody subscribes.
1: And you don't think it's just like, the payment mechanism is complicated. You think there's like a cognitive kind of cost to even making that decision?
0: So I think there's two ways you could do it. In the perfect microtransaction system, it's like the lowest possible friction. It's just like, it's like one tap, or maybe I like, if I just keep doing it automatically, either you make me make the decision, and then it's very frictionless based on that, but I'm still, I still have this decision pain. I have to think, okay, am I gonna spend the five cents? Or you don't make me make the decision, in which case you're, we're back to like rewarding mm. based on a play, rewarding based on a view, or rewarding based on some implicit action I'm creating. And now, again, the incentive structure that's created is not about what I'm choosing to value; it's about what I'm choosing to click on, or to watch, or to keep watching.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So, I guess in that thesis, Substack is just the perfect incentive model, <laughs> <Isn't that laughs> which uh, is not convenient. How's that convenient? But, but I mean, I follow I follow the logic, and I like it.
0: We made it this way because of the logic. It's not. I'm not. We're not inventing the logic backwards to make it to make it to make it convenient for ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah, one thing I was thinking about is like, how deep could this direct connection get? Would consumers be able to like, like, you know, at the top tier of their experiences in this direct connection, like, pay for lunch with like their favorite creator or something like that, or pay for like, you know, is that kind of the model you're thinking about, where it's like there's ten different tiers of like fans or whatever, right?
0: We've done some of this, and I think there's a lot more we could do. You know we have a the concept of a founding tier where you can kind of have just like a higher price point, and you don't even have to do anything. You can kind of you can offer more benefits if you want. You can offer to go to lunch with people or you can just say, you know if you really want to be supporting me and you really want me to know that you, know, you value me, this is there. We've run some experiments with other stuff like this. I think there's a lot there, basically. Rather than I'm annoyed to be paying this much and find some way to make it cheaper, the are there some people who would pay actually even a lot more if I could get more value, more connection, more interaction, more more out of this thing? I think there's a lot we can do there. I'm very excited about it.
2: What's the history of this type of thing? It kind of makes me think a little bit about like Renaissance Italy, where like there's patrons, you know, of like art, the arts, right? A little bit. And then I think about the days before the newspaper in the 1700s, Benjamin Franklin, whatever, like were people actually doing a direct connection back then 1700s, 1800s? I don't know if you've looked into this, but I'm sure before, there was a time before, or maybe in parallel with the early newspapers, where people actually self-published to some degree. Before
0: there were email newsletters, there were newsletters. I.F. Stone was a famous, had sort of like a paid mail newsletter that you could like pay for and get sent to you directly through the post. Mm -hmm. And there's a long tradition of kind of like serializing and publishing. You know, a lot of like Dickens novels were serialized back in the day. I kind of like the fact that a lot of the stuff we're doing at Substack is not only not sort of like tip of the spear technology, it's like harkens back to older things. It echoes from people sending newsletters to the mail and, you know, email itself is a ancient technology at this point by modern standards. I kind of like it. It's simple.
2: Here's kind of a left field question. What do you think of like OnlyFans? I mean, like OnlyFans has kind of like been very successful doing the same thing for adult content. Do you look at that and like, geez, that's working really well there? Or do you look at them and like... I mean, it's totally different from what you're doing. I mean, apart from the content, but there's a model kind of similar.
0: I think it's a very similar model. I remember seeing, I think OnlyFans started around the same time did, And I remember seeing them early on and being like, huh, that's interesting. Like, I wonder why they're all scantily clad people in this ad for this. And then it's gone on to be just a phenomenal business from what I understand. It's a different kind of content. It's a different kind of, you know, ultimate thing that it's serving, but it's a very similar model. And it shows how effective the model can be, basically.
1: I was thinking about what Raj said about like kind of how deep a connection you can have with the creator. Have you thought about, and this is gonna sound very fatty, but I actually think it's a good idea. Have you thought about like having AI chatbots that are trained on the creator's kind of thinking and making it so like that's one of the things you get with the subscription? Like it's like, oh, I can just subscribe. Oh, and, like, get content, or, like, I can ask them questions about the article that they just wrote.
0: I've heard that idea. I'm not super keen on that one. Oh, yeah, why not? I don't know. It seems lame to me.
1: (laughs) Like, it it seems lame at the current level of AI, or you're saying even if the AI was amazing, like, you could have a very good imitation MR, like, people would still not want to talk to the AI?
0: I don't know if I would want to rule it out. I mean, you know, my general thesis of how does AI fit into Substack is it should give the writer superpowers, let you do more with your time, but, but have this sort of human connection be the most important part of it. I guess it's hard for me to imagine that feeling worthwhile. If it was really, really good, I don't know. It doesn't strike me as immediately compelling, but who knows?
1: Yeah. I think it would be pretty fun. I mean, I love the idea of talking to people. And I also feel like If you connect enough of someone's data together, I think you can actually make a pretty reasonable representation of like how they would answer lots of questions.
0: Is that actually what you want? Do you actually just want like, I don't know, talk to the fake version of you? What would you say if I asked you this question? I don't know.
1: (laughs) I think that like this question you just asked me, I think. The fake version of me could easily answer this question. So, I, I guess eventually, like, what's the difference, right? If it's exactly the right answer that the person would give. And actually, politicians, I don't know if you've ever spoken to a politician, but like, they are so scripted in what they say that like you never get anything new out of them anyway. So, you could easily have a political AI.
0: I don't think this would work for politicians, is as compelling of a case for why it would be good as you seem to think. People sometimes mistakenly think that the thing about Substack is the content. It's like, you know, people are paying to get good writing or they're paying to get the content, the thing. And I actually think it's not. The thing that you're paying for is connection. You have a relationship, you have sort of like an ongoing, a connection to this editorial perspective, to sort of this worldview, to this human being that you can place trust in and takes risks, all that stuff. I think to the extent that AI can sort of like augment that and help them do more of that, I think that actually can be good. And maybe this is an example of it, but I do think it's the connection that matters. Like in the politician example, you know, people love to talk to politicians, but it's not because the things they say are good.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, I do think it's hard to imagine like in 10 years time that there won't be a ton of like AI boyfriends and girlfriends. Like, I think it's just inevitable that like this idea that we have of like a human connection is going to be transferable to an AI connection. I think that's like almost a given to me. So, but this is slightly different because like we're saying, like actually transferring your connection with the actual human to like some AI bot representing them, which is like not the same thing. But
0: yeah, it's a good point. What an interesting time we live in.
1: <laughs> 100%. This was awesome, Chris. Thanks for, Thanks for joining us and taking this time. Thanks so much for having me.